my need to be able to tell scripted feature, scripted television, uh, doc feature, doc television. Now I'm in unscripted, doing an unscripted show. I'm doing animation. That comes from um, a survival instinct. That doesn't come through from I want to necessarily do all these things. I mean, I want to be able to always tell my stories. So I want as many tools and as many weapons to tell my stories as possible. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode features the DGA Special Projects Committee's recent event, The Craft of the Director, Ava DuVernay. The series of conversations with master filmmakers features an in-depth discussion about the directing process, from pre-production through post. Ms. DuVernay's directorial credits include the Academy Award-nominated film Selma, the Academy Award-nominated documentary 13th, A Wrinkle in Time, Middle of Nowhere, I Will Follow, the DGA Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning series When They See Us, and episodes of Scandal and Queen Sugar. Please enjoy Ms. DuVernay's conversation with fellow director Alex Stapleton in front of a virtual audience, wherein they discuss her philosophy on directing child actors and how she went deeper while directing When They See Us. Well, Ava, I am, uh, I'm so excited to be here with you and to, to, uh, to start this conversation. And I know we don't have enough time to go into every single detail that I would like to, but I wanted to just kick off by saying that I, I just want to say that your craft, the, the way you have approached the craft of storytelling is revolutionary. Um, you've, given, you've given such dimension to Black lives on screen that is uh, deeply inspiring and long overdue. And I, I, I can't believe that I'm getting emotional right now. I'm kicking it off in a great way. Alex, it's 404. You can't. You can't break me down four minutes in, sis. We got, we're gonna keep it together. But thank you, I, I, I appreciate, um, appreciate that very much. Uh, you know, one thing that I've noticed looking at, at your body of work is that you are in it uh, from the ground up. Um, and I'm wondering if that's the, the, the key to how your, your work feels so authentic. Um, and especially when, you know, looking at your most recent film series, When They See Us, um, I would love to, my, my first question would be, how did you, how did that co project come about? How did you, how did you begin? Well, I'm very happy to be here and thanks, thanks to everyone who's joining us. I see all the participants ticking up, so that's really nice. Um, what else are we going to do, right? We're home. We're not shooting. Um, although some of our friends are starting to shoot, which is really exciting. So um, I look forward to that day and sit in jealousy until it comes. Um, but how did, how did I start when they see us? Um, it, 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 it was a long process. And I think, you know, it, it starts primarily from a place of um, mindfulness and empathy with who uh, I'm telling the story uh, about. And whether that's, you know, when they see us or 13th or, you know, Meg in A Wrinkle in Time, you know, my goal is to try to, to get inside, uh, you know, the mind of the character and really understand the, the, the perspective from which I'm going to be telling the story and the perspective of when they see us was from the boy's point of view. It was challenging because everything I read, every news piece, every article, every legal brief, to be honest, was not from their point of view. 
they had no voice in the the you know pop culture canon as it related to what happened to them during the process how did it feel to them what were they experiencing what were they not experiencing and so um it was a good four and a half year process to try to kind of reverse engineer from all of the paper that was in front of me um to sitting in the homes of the mothers to spending you know hours and hours and days and days with the men to understanding their extended families how they touched how they didn't um that was the base work before i even you know we even started to write and so that, that's how I, I think I, I try to approach every, everything is um, from a place of research and historical analysis um, because I'm a big nerd. And also it's just the way that I know to build character. And originally the idea was that it was going to be a five part series and you were going to follow each, uh, each character, each, each young man or. No, originally the idea was it was going to be a film. I, I originally, talked to one of my producers, Jonathan King. Jonathan King was a friend. He was at Participant at the time. And we were at a, a charity kind of cocktail party. And I said, I, I, you know, I need, I need you to give me some money because <laughs> I don't have any. And I need to pursue, you know, the, the story rights for the Central Park Five. And that's all I said. I said, that's, I'm going to make a movie. And uh, I'd worked with Participant before. And literally she said okay no that sounds good let's do it and that's really how it, i mean nothing's ever that easy but this one was um so his interest because we're interested in the same things was was easy but really understanding the form was different because at the time that i started this nobody's looking at limited streaming series like that was not top of mind for me to let me make a limited series for a streamer um and so in that four years so much changed about uh, you know, just my point, my perspective on that form, but also to see the flexibility of the form. I fell in love with it. It's like, wait a minute. So this is technically a five hour movie. Just cut up, no commercial, like don't have to worry about, yeah, sign me up. And so the idea that um, I could just kind of take the idea of the limited form, originally it started as a five. As I got in and started to research and we started to write, it felt like, well, are you going to do five just because Netflix said you could do five? Because the story really wants to be four. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, you have to honor the story and listen to the story. Um, and so I'm glad we made that decision early on. I, 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 I'm pretty sure it was the first time someone called Netflix and said, um, so I'm going to take less than what you gave me, cut it in half, move it around. I remember when I, I, some great people over there, are you sure? Do you want to just keep this fifth episode in your pocket and just let's just keep it on the books and I said oh no I'll keep the money on the books I'll move it on I'll amortize it across less episodes I'm not saying less money I'm saying less product um, but they were lovely and um and so yeah it turned out to be four but in my mind early on you know how you have to try to have organizing principles for me anyway organizing principles for for me, as I began, it's like, oh, five hours, one for each man. Um, but, you know, the storytelling wanted to be different. Um, so what was your approach to casting? Because that seems like the first kind of gargantuan task in putting this, besides writing it and, and doing all of that work and getting through all the, the, the court documents and, uh, you know, all of that aside, when you really started to, to roll up your sleeves and get into it, 
how did you go about casting the young men? For me, the rolling up the sleeves and getting into it was the writing and the research and to try to be as accurate as possible with the feelings and the intention that I was, uh, the, the feelings that the men were sharing with me and their families and my intention to try to share that. Once we got through that hurdle, then you start thinking, oh my God, I need, I need all these boys. It's really challenging to find young performers who, I won't say can do the work, I'll say have been, that are untrained to do it a different way. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge, even with a Storm Reed and Derek McCabe and A Wrinkle in Time, so many kids are kind of trained in the Nickelodeon Disney way. And so a big part of it is to look for kids who have not been trained, because it's hard to get that off. And there's nothing wrong with those shows, but that's different than what we're doing. And so it's that training, that very, you know, hyper animated, you know, kind of big uh, work that we see on those, on those shows that, that kids love, it doesn't really translate. So a lot of what you're looking for is uh, just as a specific background. Um, you know, someone who is acting, um, but is not acting in a certain way. And that's hard because our industry, as it relates to young performers, is really preferring them to be and perform in a certain way. Um, there's no conversation about casting that can happen without a, a, not even just to mention a full bow and genuflection to the great Aisha Coley, who is my casting director. She's the only casting director I've ever had since my very first independent film. For some reason, she continues to um, work with me. And, um, and she's really taught me over the years, she's tried to teach me some things, some things I'm too stubborn to, to, to learn, but she, you know, as, as it relates to, to kids, um, I don't have kids in my real life. So I don't treat kids like kids, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, 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 um, I talk down to them. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just, um, and I don't think not having kids does that because I've seen friends who don't have kids who really do the, oh, honey thing because I don't have kids. A lot of people with kids are like, move and get over there. Yeah. Stop that and move over. Um, I think I'm a little bit from, I, I, I come from the friend vibe. I'm just, you're, you're, you're that old lady who's just, you know, she's like friendly. So I try to just um, see, see them where they are in, in a friend space. And so a big part of the casting, getting back to the question, it's about that training that you're, you're looking for, um, a, 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 not that layer of Hollywood veneer training that we're seeing from young performers, but it's also, and with so much of casting, who is this kid and who is his family, his or her family? The family is going to be such a big part of, of the process, right? This is how the actor, the young actor is going home. This is who they're processing with. This is who, when they do a very strenuous day that's violent, that's emotionally rigor rigorous, this is who they're going home to. And so for the safety of my actors, I want to make sure that I am selecting actors who are going to be able to go home to a safe space. Not safe in terms of, you know, it's going to be violent, but safe in terms of emotionally available because I'm asking them to do work that needs to be processed by a kid's mind the next day and or that evening and even in the preparation. So I'm really when I cast young people and particularly for when they see us, I'm also casting the family.
Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm trying to understand who that kid is, what they're going home to, how they're coming into me. um, And, um, and, and kind of what their preparation, what their support is at home. Uh, That's a part, a big part of the selection process for me. I've, I've, I've not cast kids who were great in the room, but I just felt it's wrong to put this kid through that because I don't feel like they're going to have enough help, not in the preparation, but in the, um, in the processing of what they'd have to do. I mean, those boys were put through a lot in, in wow. the How did that work with like Asante Black? Who Asante Black is, is just uh, a miracle boy. So, um, but his, uh, he's never acted before. So never acted before. He got the Emmy nomination for this thing. The kid never acted. He did act. He acted in a school play in Baltimore. And uh, he likes to remind me of that. But he was just lovely and just one of the things he said to me early on. It's like, I just want you to know I'm a real actor. You know, I, I, he was reading, you know, reading books on theory and, you know, studying plays. and. Um, and it just it was just very committed to uh, a larger process. But also he came from a family that supported that process. They knew they had the special kid and they were pouring into him and protecting him and, you know, a- a helping him process it all. So for him, you know, I love the day Asante came and I knew he had had a little because he has someone in his family who's an actor, uh, a, a well-known actor. And um, so with all the boys, I said, look, if I say something and you don't know it, tell me. I'm going to be talking about marks and blocking. And if I say a word you don't know, don't act like you know. That is the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is to say, what's that mean, right? And that happened a lot for many of them. Um, but Asante, um, I was I was amazed. He'd never been on a set, but he never asked. I wonder later, was he just kind of playing it? I think he had studied so much as to what to expect. Wow. But when he walked in, I remember we did the scene of his interrogation. For people who don't know who he is, he's the kid in the red jacket who, at the end of episode two, holds the horn, plays the horn in a dream sequence in the street. Um, he plays Kevin Richardson. Um, and I remember... Um, him coming on set and uh and we had a a, a particularly it, it was the part of the interrogation where he needed to to break uh, you know i mean like he needed to get to the point that the actor had told that the real man had told us this is when they literally broke me in half mentally and so working with this it's just it's not happening and i'm like oh god what do i say to this kid and I'm like, so come over. How you feeling? You okay? You comfortable? Okay. Let's make sure. You, you good? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. All right. Look. Good. You know what? Let's try it again. Okay. Let's roll. Okay. We're going. We're doing it again. I'm watching. I'm like, come on, get there. Not getting there. I'm like, oh no, oh no. Go over. Hey, so let's talk through what what's happening here. How? What? 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 Do do we understand what's going on? Like how, how how let's break down what's going on and go back again with the try. I mean, I'm going every every trick. I won't give up my tricks, but every trick. Finally, it's like the fifth time, and I and I cut, and I'm about to call a break. Like he just needs a break. We need a break. And I lean over to him, and I was like, "So?" And he's like, "Is this the time I'm I'm supposed to break down?" 
Is someone supposed to cry? I was like, yeah, no, this, this is the part. Like right now, like I'm gonna roll and this is, he's like, oh yeah, okay, no. I wasn't sure if this was the part. I was like, yeah, no, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Yes, this is the part. Action, this kid gives, I mean, the whole place, grown men, grips, gaffers, you know, everyone is crying at this kid. He just, <laughs> is this the part you wanted me to go for at full throttle? So anyway, I could talk all day about Asante Black, but um, he and all of these boys, yeah. um, men now, um, just gave it their all. They yeah. were all different. They were all beautiful, and I'm grateful to each of them. Well, how did you, I, you know, I wanted to rewind to ask, how, how much information did you share, especially with your younger cast members, um, how much did you have to walk through, because you're unloading in this film, or this film series, systemic, giant systemic issues, you know, when it comes to race, and, and giant interpretations of how we see young black youth, um, and then the, just the facts of the case, and like what happened. Um, how did you prepare them what did you give them? What was that correspondence like without maybe, were you ever afraid that you would overwhelm them with too much? No, no, I wasn't afraid of, I did not talk about the larger issues and themes. I had them focus on their guy and their story. I told them, I, at the moment that I cast you, I am no longer the expert of, for this character. You are the shepherd for this character. You have to know everything. You have to tell me what he would say and do and move, right? I trust you now. And if I'm giving you that responsibility, you better take it and you better be serious. Here's your homework. They got a huge packet all about, the, uh, all about their, their, their guy that they were um, portraying. They had time with the real men. It was hard for the boys, though. I would talk to a couple of them. I mean, they're talking to a grown man. And so they have to be that person, this adult, when the adult was young. Right. So uh, that was a bit of a process. And I would tell them, you know, don't look for gestures. Don't look for the way he is. Uh, behaving, just listen to his story and feel it in your heart. And he'll tell you about how he felt during that time. Uh, that's all I want you to do is, is feel similarly. You don't have to behave. You don't have to be like him. Uh, you just have to feel like him and that'll come out. And so, um, so yeah, that, that's how we worked on it. But I didn't want to overload them with the larger part of the process. And, and I, I told them not even to pay attention to the other storylines. You know, it was enough heavy lifting. Just focus on your guy and, uh, you know, don't let your guy down. You know, this is, you're, you're the one, you're the bearer of his story. And so this is on you and I'm going to be by your side, but you know, this is for you to do. So they all took it really seriously. And I can't, I can't resist asking what, uh, with Jarrell Jerome, um, who plays Corey Wise, which is an incredible incredible performance you chose to keep him the same throughout instead of casting a younger actor and then the adult version of him he plays <laughs> the 25 year span yeah. what was it about him as an actor um that that where you saw that he could handle that and how did you work with him specifically uh to to continue that thread yeah you know i always thought i was going to have uh 10 actors playing the five characters um but Jarrell came in and auditioned for the young version of Corey and also came in and auditioned for the older version of Corey. Quintessential New York, I can do them both. Let me try this. Let me try that. And um, it's a bit of a longer drawn out story, but ultimately I saw him in the room do both and thought, wow, 
this lends itself to the way that we've written it because in the four episodes, episode one and two, you see the boys from their arrest through their trial. Episode three, you see them move from boys to men, but you only see the four that didn't go to adult prison. In episode four, you see what happened to Corey from the moment that he is convicted to the end when he's released. And so episode three, Corey is absent. They just talk about Corey. What happened to Corey? Where's Corey? And you drop into four and it's all about Corey. It's based, that form was based on my promise to Corey of when I first sat with him in Harlem, he said, there is no Central Park Five, ma'am, before he knew me. There's four plus one because they went through one thing, but I went through something else that they'll never know. And so he didn't, he doesn't like that term Central Park Five because he feels like it doesn't, they don't all have that same experience. And I said, well, if you work with me and you tell me your story, I'll make sure that everyone knows that while you love, while you love them all and support them, that you had a different story. And so that was, that intention carried through the structure. And so when we came across Jarell Jerome, I thought, oh, wow, this could even further highlight that promise that I've made to Corey um, in that his characterization would be different from everyone else's with one actor. Um, and so you just, you know, it, it's not even lucky. I don't even know what it is that you find an actor of the caliber of Jarell Jerome who is able to do both um, in the span of the six months that we shot go from 16 um, innocent with his girlfriend walking through Harlem with this swagger, with this red high top fade to, you know, the, 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 the true torture that he endured. Um, and so, yeah, it was a blessing. And he also, I, it, I, I want to know more about like on set, what is the process? Cause it feels like you cocoon, you can feel it. You can feel it exuding like, like onto how, how the performances are delivered the performances are all these are young men and and men like michael k williams who i've never seen a more vulnerable performance come out of him like how how do michael you k. williams i i thought his performance was was incredible because it was just so layered with especially in the interrogation scene that like just that gutted me and i had to stop watching for a day <laughs> because it was so symbolic and, it, and again it goes back to this larger thing of how you work um or at least how it comes across to me which is you that one scene after he talks to that white cop who tells him oh yeah you thought you could trust me but no not really yeah and he has to process that so quickly and then go back into the room and look his son in the eye as a man and tell his son to basically, you know, to, to compromise the truth, like the, the layers of, of what you're working with or what you were working with, um, that day, did you, how did, how did you, how did you dissect that with Michael K. Williams? What, what, what was, what was the conversation and how did, how did that get choreographed? Well, you know, people always talked about, talked to me about that scene and I appreciate you pulling it out, but there were two actors in the scene. It was Michael K. Williams and this uh, actor named Jace, I'm going to mess up his last name, Bartok, I think it is. And, you know, that, that, that white police officer, that's a performance there because when he first starts in the room, he's good cop. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so he's leaning into that and he's doing that thing in a way that, you know, feels very sincere. And I wanted folks to feel that trust of him. 
when you first go out into the hallway, you're trusting that officer. You're, you're trusting that you're being protected and served, right, in that moment by, by a detective. And that the turn, I didn't want any of the, you know, law enforcement portrayals to be, um, you know, on the nose, right. you know, uh, they're, 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 they, you know, it, it, that officer is, is trying to get something to close this case. And he's doing what, um, what I'm told by the family happened. Again, this is from the family's perspectives and the perspective of the men. And this character for Michael K. Williams was tough because that father um, has passed away. And the fa and the the child, um, Antron McRae, one of the five, has very hard feelings about what his father did that day. And so, as I'm sitting hearing the story from Linda McRae, rest in peace, who's who's passed away since we made the film, and Antron McRae about what happened, I have to then piece together with Michael the psychology behind why the father did it, right? And it really came from Linda McRae more than anyone. Her interpretation of why in that moment, um, uh, you know, Mr. McRae walked back into the interrogation room and facilitated the lie for the police. And Michael and I talked so much about it. It, it really came from not the fear, but I'm going to protect this boy at any cost. I believe what that officer has said, even though he's shown me to be disingenuous, I believe that if I do this, I can take him home. Right. And so the direction is get him home, get yeah. that boy home. And if this man has told you the only way to get him home is for him to say this, then you better get him to say it. And, um, and so that was the, the engine for, for those scenes. And it was, yeah, tough day. You've also, I mean, I, I'm seeing this throughout your work too. You we're talking, we're talking about this cop in particular, but I, I do appreciate how much dimension you give to the villains. In, in your work, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm calling them villains, uh, but, you know, even with Selma, you know, with George Wallace. But, or, but, but not before we, 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 you had said the words Vera Farmiga. And with that, I have to, <laughs> because that lady is, wow, that woman is something else. She is a, uh, I don't even know what to say. One of my favorite actors had really wanted to work with her for so, so long. And you get, you get, you know, as a director, you get an actor that you've wanted to work with for so long on set and you feel away, you know, you're, I don't know, I do feel like, oh my gosh, this is my day. And, and um, we just clicked so beautifully and she was so open and giving and, you know, she played a really hard role there as Elizabeth Letterer. And uh, she, you know, she's the one that had to interrogate the boys on the on the stand. She's the one that had to uh, kind of do that hard, heavy lifting on the stand. And she, gosh, uh, I don't know. I, I can't speak highly enough about the experience of working with her. And, you know, I really, whether it's in Selma with the, with the folks that had to play racists, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, it's, you know, when they see us with the folks that had to play officers that um, were found to have, uh, you know, been a part of a case in which minors were convicted for something that they didn't do. Um, that's not easy. 
Yeah, not easy. And and so I find that in, in a lot of my, my work, my black actors are applauded as well. They should because they're dope. But they're acting opposite someone that has to apply that pressure. And I found that some of my most intense conversations are with the white actors on set who have joined the production because they appreciate the intention and they want to get the story across, but then they have to be the aggressor in the scene. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's a, a hard thing to, to grapple with. I remember for Selma, these are, just, these are just background actors in Alabama. Okay, let's start there. All right? They, they're not even used to anyone in the directorial unit having any kind of conversation with them. Nobody's even talking. So I'm coming over, it's the director, I'm coming over. It's hot, we're in the South. And I say, okay, um, hi, my name is Ava. I'm so happy you're all here. And first hand up, ma'am, I just wanna let you know I'm not a racist and I am here to, you know, cause I, I saw the ad and I believe in Dr. King and what <laughs> he stands for. Thank you, sir. No, I know that you all are not real racist. I'm going to believe that you're not real racist because you're here because you want to tell the story of these freedom fighters. So don't worry. I don't think you're a real racist. But you have to act like a racist today. Okay, okay, we'll do it. So then they continue on and I'm telling them what I want. This is not on the page, but these are the things I want you to yell. And because of SAG, you all have to yell this together. So if any of all the directors out there, you know you can't have one person saying something because that's, different pay rate we didn't have a lot of money so they have to say it as a group okay so all of you are going to be yelling these following terms go home inward um and i'm telling them what to say faces are falling eyes are getting big like no young lady raises her hand ma'am do you want us to say the n-word or the n-word and I'm like, what does that mean? I say, um, the N-word, like the full word. I said the full, yes. No, don't say the words, the N-word. Say the full real word. But can I just say the N-word? I said, are you asking me if you can just say the actual words, the N-word, like get out of here, N-word? Yes, ma'am. I said, no, ma'am, you cannot, you have to say the real, the real word. Because at that time, there was no N-word, because this is, this is back when they said, you know, the real word. I mean, Alex, some of the convos across the movies have been, um, they've been really telling, but they touch my heart because people, you know, have a, a real hard time with it. And so a part of my job while bolstering the black actors in these situations is also to really hold hands with our white actors who, you know, rightly have some challenges. Is that, um, do you find when you're, on a project like Selma and on a project uh, like when they see us, do you feel, I mean, I know when I do like heavy content with my docs, it's, I get, I'm by the end of the day, I'm, I'm spent. I'm, I'm drained. I have nothing left to give. Um, it seems like you give so much on set. How do you recharge your battery uh, when you're in the middle of shooting? Oh, I don't. <laughs> I get asked a lot. Tell us about your self-care routine. I don't know. Um, no, you know, we know when we're directing, you're just in it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was talking to a director. He was like, yes, a really famous director. <laughs> I was on a, a festival jury with who said, yes, I get massages on the weekend. 
I said, while you're shooting, get massages on the weekend? Yes, you must. You don't get massages on the weekend? I said, I do not get massages on the weekend. Um, they, come to the, they come to the hotel. They give you a massage. I said, okay, well, no, that's good to go. I said, yeah, no, I don't do that. They were like, and of course, you, you, know, you, you, um, you, uh, you have the meals you know, brought in. It's the, it's the catering. I said, oh, like crafty, like catering? Said, no, your own special meals that I brought in to nourish you with fruits and vegetables and berries. I said, who, 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 who do you know? Who pays for that? Oh, the studio. I said, the, your studio pays for special food for you. It's like, damn it! I've got the black woman's deal, and there wasn't a chef included. Um, but yes, the bottom line is, there are things that people do. I'm joking. I'm sure someone pay, would pay for it if I asked. I'm very sure if I said I need meals and a masseuse, it would be taken care of. But uh, I don't because I am obsessed mm -hmm. during that time. And uh, I'm just waiting to get in for the next day. I'm trying to sleep. I'm trying to restore. I'm trying to meditate, trying to pray. I'm trying to continue to study. I'm constantly, you know, iterating on the script um and um and just just you know working to make the best thing happen so i'm the worst answerer of that question well the answer is i do nothing <laughs> except sleep and go back to the set <laughs> well what do you do how, how do you start your days on set what do you do when you when you first arrive um what i do when i first I'm like god every day is different you know so often on the indies, but mm -hmm. certainly on when they see us, we were in New York. I can't even believe how much we were out and about in New York. I mean, when will we be able to shoot like that again? We were everywhere. But, um, you know, it was a five hour film. And so there was no way to fully prep that every bit of it. So it was a rolling prep. So many days I started the day scouting somewhere else, uh, something that's coming up three weeks from now or reviewing and approving sets on the stages or build so much of that. It was very rare that I, my first thing I did on the day was land on the set. Um, so that was a big part of that piece. Or I'd start in a rehearsal for something the next day it was uh, 134 speaking parts. Uh, casting was on a rolling basis as well. So when we started, we were not fully cast. Um, you know, the, the prep would have been too long and expensive to do it in that way. So we were on top of each other. You were cutting um, too, right? You were in post. You were in, you were cutting too. You were in post for part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We were in post, but you know, I, um, I, my, the editors on that were incredible. Spencer Averick, Terry Shropshire and Michelle Tesoro were, were so trusted and skilled that, um, I really, I'm not a big, um, cut watcher while I direct. Like yeah. I'm not really interested in seeing cuts while I direct. And that's really different. Some, some people really like to see cuts as they go. I may say, I need to get my mind around how this scene, scene looks as it connects to something else. Give me a rough. But I'm not trying to see assemblies as I go. Um, because I know myself and I know I'll get down on myself. And, you know, you know let me just... Look, I'll do all the depressing stuff later when I get home. So, um, so we were shooting in New York and cutting in LA and beyond just things that were needed for continuity or, you know, obviously things you need for VFX to keep that rolling and to be feeding the VFX machine. Um, I, I, I really didn't watch assembly. So, so yes, post was happening, but I, I was, 
wasn't emotionally engaged. Well, I'm curious, you know, just kind of going back, because you mentioned shooting on a stage. Um, uh, I, I would love to, to maybe kind of segue into like where your visual inspiration comes from. Uh, the visual language in uh, When They See Us is, is incredible. Um, the production design is incredible. Obviously, uh, Bradford Young is incredible. <laughs> um, where, how do you communicate, um, especially with, with your work that's based, has a historical context, how do you communicate the lens and the way that you want to shape that story uh, to look and feel uh, to your DP, production designer, your whole team? Yeah, it's just really detailed work in the building of it, building it brick by brick together early on. Um, on Selma, there were some Paul Fusco pictures that I loved um, that um, the photographer took of RFA's funeral mm -hmm. procession on the train that I was really enamored by that had these soft edges and this kind of really ethereal feel that I brought to Bradford Young, the cinematographer of Selma, and said, you know, I, I want these frames to look like this and was the basis for a lot of our common language, you know, on a, on a, on a uh, DC Comics uh, pilot that I just made for HBO Max, my DP, Matt Lloyd, um, you know, completely different references. Um, you know, um, on When They See Us, um, you know, it was something I was, we were still finding and, and it was really came out of being on the ground in Harlem, in the Schomburg projects, um, in prisons, in, in precincts and feeling like there was just this, a layer of, smoke everything just felt gray and kind of like cloud. walking yeah kind yeah. of in a cloud um cloud though has a positive sense it's kind of like this dark, dark yeah. cloud and so you know that that um that added to our ideas about really shooting through atmosphere on that so there was constant <laughs> atmosphere going through it our poor boys they'd sit in the chair we're like bring in the atmosphere pumping in smoke and atmosphere and remember one time, one of the boys, I think it was Khalil Harris, it's like, so is this a, <laughs> is this a smoky, is this, is there supposed to be smoke in this room? And I was like, no, you're not going to see the smoke. It's like, well, how can I not? I can barely see you. He said, no, the camera's not going to pick up the smoke. You feel smoke, but I promise you there won't be smoke in the camera. So one of those boys didn't believe me that he said, there's no way all the smoke in this room isn't going to be on the camera. He was actually, should I play in a smoke room? <laughs> should I be coughing and moving this away? I said, stand still. We're putting smoke around you. And so you see that just light haze uh, that Brad shot through for it. And I remember the kid, I can't remember who, which one it was, was amazed that you couldn't see it because literally the smoke on set was quite thick. But the look was beautiful. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a process you build layer by layer. And... I think if you go into prep, you know, thinking you've got it all figured out, you know, it's, that's just a waste of energy. I try to go in with references and ideas and a spirit of collaboration around it all. And that's different from some directors who are very precise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I think there's a precision to my collaboration and how far I will go. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going in, um, you know, lacking flexibility around ideas because ultimately it all feeds into you know, something that will have my name on it. So I always, I always shake my head. I, I can't figure out directors who are not collaborative as if 
it's going to say directed by these 90 people. I mean, ultimately, you can, you get to hear the ideas. Everyone is graciously giving you their ideas. Take them. You get all the credit at the end. Why fight? If you're confident enough in your position as director, then you shouldn't fight ideas. You know what I mean? You should, they're gifts. They're going to make you look good. You know what I mean? So open your arms and take them. That's, that's how I think of it. And that's how we, we get down on our sets. And how important is it to you? Because you do have frequent collabor collaborators. Uh, like, you know, Bradford goes all the way back to, uh, with you from one of your early documentaries. My mic sound, sounds nice. And you can see the style that you guys do together, you know, kind of starting to percolate. And then yeah. of nowhere, it's really, you know, it's really there. Uh, and it just, it, how, how, what is your working relationship like uh, with him? And, and do you guys push and pull? Do, do you, you know, how does that, that process work? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, Bradford's work with me looks different with his, than his work with Denis Villeneuve and different than his work with uh, Andre Dussimo. Uh He, he, adapts he can adapt to the look of uh of the director that he's working with and still keep a consistency that feels like his you know i think my work with him is probably the most um let's say the least the, the 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 least experimental his mm -hmm. work with andrew is delicious like i actually want to take bread and dip it in the picture and eat it like butter on bread it's so gorgeous and beautiful and just dripping with energy and flavor. Um, and so, so yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, you know, with, whether it's with Bradford, whether it's with Kira Kelly and Antonio Calvace, who are the DPs of Queen Sugar and setting that look, um, whether it's uh, Kira Kelly and Hans Charles, who were my DPs on 13th, um, you know, uh, Tobias Sleesler, who's my DP on Wrinkle, you know, that, that DP relationship is so, um, I won't even say important, just vital to success for me. Mm -hmm. um, because that is, uh, that position and my editor's position really are kind of my best friends in the endeavor. The two people that I have to feel that I can trust and rely on in order to, um, to, to get what's in here out. Yeah. And so those choices are really hard to make. I've been lucky. I've had the same editor uh, forever, yeah. Spencer. Another collaborate. Another, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, and so yeah, it's 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 like getting married. <laughs> you know, you gotta choose carefully. Well, it's yeah. also interesting because you you know you do you have amazing documentaries that you do, and you have amazing scripted projects that you do, and I I like I think it's really rare, especially with Spencer. Um, as an editor to have most doc directors only work with doc editors and we don't really touch the scripted editors and vice versa. Um, so is that like, does the, the relationship and, and how you direct, does it change um, how you give direction or how you work through post um, on your scripted material with Spencer versus, uh, you know, when you're in the doc space? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's all, you know, it really, for me, is all storytelling. I think my, um, my need to be able to tell scripted feature 
scripted television, uh, doc feature, doc television. Now I'm in unscripted, doing an unscripted show. I'm doing animation. That comes from um, a survival instinct. That doesn't come from I want to necessarily do all these things. I mean, I want to be able to always tell my stories. So I want as many tools and as many weapons to tell my stories as possible. Because if one day, and the day will come, where folks don't want to see my movies anymore, my, my scripted features, maybe they'll see my doc features. And they'll come a day where they won't want to see my doc features. Well, maybe I can tell a story, an animated story. And they'll come a day where they won't see the, want to tell the animated story. I'll be like, you know what? Branded content. Let me go do that. And if they're like, you know what? Not the brand, I kind of like, you know what? Skywriting stories. Like, I'm never gonna not do it. So yeah. in my mind, I gotta know how to do it and, and, and do them all because there's not a, a real precedent for, you know, black women directors to have long careers consistently creating work. Not to say, let me say that there aren't black women directors who've been working for a long time. But so many of our heroes, our heroines, Julie Dash, Nima Barnett, Uzan Palsy, have not been able to consistently, or empowered and supported to consistently direct work, right? And so it's from watching them and saying, and seeing them diversify. Many of them teach, many of them have gone to TV. All the things that they've done is say, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be able to always be a moving target because if this shuts down, I'm, I'm going here, I'm, I'm doing this. And it's been helpful, especially in this COVID environment. I can't shoot. And I've said this for years, like, golly, I got to have many tools in my toolbox in case I can't shoot. Now we can't shoot. And so unscripted television and animation and, you know, you can always cut a doc and research for your doc and always just making sure that there's a way to tell the story. So in answer to the question, when I think about how to make the story, um, that is a function of just standard process, but I don't think of the story in terms of uh, form. I just think of it as a story I must tell. My job is to find the best form, and luckily I can, because I have trained myself to be able to work in different forms. Like if I get a story, a book now, um, which I get a lot of books, I can think, hmm, is this film or TV? Yeah. Is this a feature or a series? Is this doc or is it narrative? You know? Um, and to have all those tools at our disposal at this point is just so rare and, you know, a beautiful thing. I really enjoy it. And you're taking so many people with you on the journey. Mm -hmm. Like that's the other part of it that, you know, I know that's not about being on, on set in a way, you know, directly related to how you operate you as the director, but you, you're, you're, navigating all these spaces and, and, and trailblazing paths, you know, for people to do the same, you know, behind you uh, or in front of you or all over the place. All around. All around. Um, I did want to selfishly kind of, you know, talk about your, your doc. I think your documentaries are amazing. And I, I selfishly wanted to carve out a little bit of time to talk about uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Alex is a beautiful doc filmmaker. So but she wasn't introduced as, as a, as a formidable, formidable formidable filmmaker but she is so i would encourage you to check her out thank you ava good at her job <laughs> well thank you um i wanted to to ask you 
with your, when you approach a documentary, because I know that you are, you know, a student of history, you get way in there. Um, how much do you, how much can you at this point plan out the story that you want to tell before you start shooting? Um, or do you find your real narrative, you know, like how you're going to get from A to Z in the edit, in the edit bay? Do you kind of have like a rough idea and then you... you I always go in with an idea, but when I, when I analyze it on the back end, very little in the doc space, very little of the original idea makes its way through. Because you get into that edit and the edit's my favorite place. If, if I ask filmmakers sometimes, this is a total nerd out director question, but I ask filmmakers sometimes, okay, you can only choose to do one. You can either be in prep, you can be in principal, or you can be in post. Which would you choose? 80% um, say they want to be shooting principal. Um, and then the other 20 is split 50-50 between prep and post. For me, it is 100% post. If wow. someone just gave me the footage and said, you were, you were asleep and we shot all this. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, okay, cool, great. I got it from here. Because for me, post is the place where it really comes together. That's why when I said earlier, when I'm on set, I'm not really engaged in post because I'm like, I'm gonna get to that, you know? Because when I'm in post, it is, that is where I make it. That's where, you, that's where, for me, that's where I make it. And that's where I have the most freedom in post, in that edit, with that color, with that sound, with that, all that. That is where I really have the least amount of people around me. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're shooting, it's like, okay, it's a free for all. Everybody come on in, let's do this. And even in, in, in prep, a lot of people, a lot of voices, but it all gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And at the end of the day in post, it's me and Spencer at a little, at, in, in one room. And your footage. Two people, it's, and the footage, that's right. And what other, what dream place is there to be? In a dark room with your friend and your footage, I mean, that's a party. So I love it. I love post and, and, and it always changes. And that's, I think, my favorite part about filmmaking is post. Do you, do you do a lot of test screening for, you know, for any, I mean, I'm sure some of it might be required when you're in a large studio project. Yeah, it, my, my, my view to test screens have really changed as I think I've, you know, matured, matured really? as a filmmaker or just gotten older. Um, I used to just be very against it uh especially in a studio environment it's like okay so these people are going to tell me what this is Last story. <laughs> um very against it very i mean it just felt like stab wounds you know to have to go through that process and you know i've been through a studio process in that way where you know sometimes it's used to uh further a certain narrative that the studio wants. Mm -hmm. It uses backup to whatever they, they want. And, um, and so it's really just come from gaining more control over my projects and being able to, to pick partners in, the, in a different way that's helped me uh, see test screenings and hear it differently. I think one thing that they, you know, some of the things they don't teach you in film school, I wouldn't know, I didn't go. 
but I don't think there's a class about how to hear and how to get feedback from test screenings, because that's a whole course of how to actually hear that feedback and be able to discern real helpful information and stuff that's just going to throw you into a, 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 a tailspin. Um, and, and so that's only come through, uh, through time, mm -hmm. you know, and be able to be able to be comfortable enough to show something early and to, I think it's to know what I want to get out of it. Right. These are the questions I have about the thing. I'm not looking for, okay, everything you say, you're Charlie Brown's mom, but what do you think about this part? Cause this is the part I, I'm not sure about. And so some of these tools that I think, you know, are, are helpful in that, you know, as filmmakers, we need to talk about to each other more. Yeah. You know, yeah. About how, and that's, you know, that's all a part of the end product. You know, also I'm a former marketer and publicist. So I get a lot of calls from my fellow filmmakers about marketing and publicity and um, a lot. I should start a small side practice called your filmmaker marketing presentation is tomorrow. And you need to <laughs> <laughs> because I get a lot of, and I love it. It still lets my mark, you know, I still get to. I don't know how you find all this time. I don't know how you do, I don't know who you are. It's, <laughs> it's fun because I used to be a part of those filmmaker meetings on the other side. So the I, time. I know what the marketing department's going through to get ready for the meeting. And I know how to hide things. I know how to fudge when you don't really have the thing. And you already know what the filmmaker's going to ask. And, you know, just trying to give filmmakers more robust questions to ask and help them understand who all the different departments are. And anyway, uh, so, but, the, the, but it's, 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 I think if more directors talked about their full process and there's something about our profession that it's like, we are the leaders, so we know. Um, but I think, you know, some of my best conversations have been about, you know, times of vulnerability where you talk to a friend who's gone through it. And you know, you're able to get insight into, you know, I, that's why I wish, you know, some of the filmmakers of note and filmmakers who are well known and have gone through this stuff, or even, you know, filmmakers from generations before who may not be actively making film. There's so much information and knowledge to be shared there, especially around navigating the politics of the filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I wish we shared more. Well, and that's why, I mean, I think, I feel like everyone who's tuning in is probably very grateful for you taking the time. Uh, uh, and it's not a wrap up, folks, because we do have more questions here, but uh, for you to take the time to kind of dissect your process. Um, you know, I, I, I also wonder in my head, because I hear you when you talk about directors, we operate in silos, you know, we have our own little ecosystems of how we make content. And so I didn't go to film, I didn't even graduate from college. So, um, did not go to film school and often I, I when I run into directors that did don't have the film school pedigree there's I'm over it now but when I was younger it was like oh I can't even really let people know that I have no idea what you're talking <laughs> you know there's so much start and it's like who do you trust because you have to appear you know to be in control at all times mm -hmm. and it's like you were talking about you know with your actors like giving them permission or or encouraging them rather um to to let you know when they had a question um and what would you say to you know some of the younger directors maybe tuning in uh right now like who are trying to navigate that 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 balance you know of being taken seriously but also trying to 
to learn as they go. Right. No, it's tough. I mean, you have to find your own tribe, you know, because everyone's not to be trusted. And there will be people who are like, oh, gosh, she doesn't know this, you know. Um, so you have to you know, be able to talk to people who you trust and to, you know, I, I really don't like the word mentor. I've talked about that before, but um, the because of the process in Hollywood, it's so disingenuous. It's kind of like walking up to someone and saying, will you be my mentor? It's like walking up to someone and say, will you be my lover? It's like, uh, I don't know you. Uh, no. I, why? I don't know anything about you. Because it's for me, that mentorship, that exchange is an intimate process. I'm going to sit down and tell you what I've experienced. I'm going to try to help you not do that. I, I need to know you and know that you're taking that seriously and feel like you're worth that exchange because it's, it's my time and it's my heart and it's the way that I feel. And so, um, so with that, you know, I, I just encourage people to look at building relationships and building kind of a circle of folks that they can trust. Even if you have one person, you know, I have a great friend who's a director who I go on walks with, we walk maybe three times a week. And, um, and we talk about, we talk a lot about work you know, and what we're experiencing on calls and what we're, you know, experiencing on sets and what we're experiencing in negotiations and what we're experiencing with actors and trading pages and all that stuff. And that's just one person who, if she was the only person that I walked with, would be enough. Luckily, I'm very fortunate to have more. But if you can find one, one kind soul who will, you know, look upon you with, uh, with, the empathy that we all want as artists, you're ahead of the game. So just find one. You can do that. Not you, but the young <laughs> person out there who's watching. Um, and, you know, I wanted to, I might kind of pivot uh, here, but I'm so interested because just again with how you work with actors and, and your relationship, you know, with someone like Oprah, who you also direct. Do you, is it, is it a, when you have a relationship outside of, you know, of a film project, um, is that like a tricky thing when you get onto set, like, you know, how to, to, to kind of take the, work, the, the role as a director, um, especially when you are dealing with someone <laughs> as, as, as large and, and, and you know, uh, formidable as, you know, Oprah is? What is it like to direct Oprah, is, I guess, is the question. She's a different category. It, it, it generally, do I find it hard to take the director mantle if there's someone I know in real life? Absolutely not. I never find it hard to direct the, take the director mantle. Really, I, I just don't. Um, but it's my favorite thing to do. What I need to do is direct less. For example, when we were prepping for this to come on this, <laughs> this, this, this call, I said, Alex, do you want to, is there a book that you want to put on the bottom of your laptop to raise up your screen so that our eyes are looking? And I heard myself and I was like, ah, oh, you don't have to direct Zoom, okay? <laughs> Pull it back. Don't, Ava, don't direct the Zoom. And she was gracious. She went, she found a book. She put it up. Wasn't quite high enough. If she was on my set, I'd say no higher. But I said, you know what? We're going to roll with it. I said, it's beautiful. It's fine. So what I need to do is pull back from directing. But Oprah is a different thing. I mean, now you're dealing with stratospheric icons and legends, Cicely Tyson, um, you know, there are a few people where you get into a real space of, what am I gonna tell this person? Like literally, what could I ever tell Cicely Tyson? 
There's nothing I can tell her. Cicely Tyson said to me um, on, the, uh, on a show I have called Cherish the Day, and there were a bunch of directors who were going to be directing her through these episodes. She was a series regular. Um, I would like to be directed, she said. I'd like to be directed. I'm just telling you that right now. Some people don't want to direct me, and that upsets me. I want to be directed. I said, okay, yes, ma'am. I said, how much, how <laughs> much do you like to be directed? I want, I want feedback. I want to know. I want answers to my questions. I want to know what to do. I said, well, okay, thank you. How gracious to know that you are a living legend and you're walking onto a set and everyone's like, what do I even say? You know, I remember reading a, an article. It was about uh, either Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. I think it was De Niro. And he, it was a, someone that he was directing who was fairly new. And the article was about the person, the director. And the director said this and it always stuck with me. And this is before I was director and I thought, wow, that would be wonderful to have that kind of graciousness. The director said he overheard De Niro say, I'll call you back, my director's coming, right? And that just in hearing that, it made the young director feel like, oh, he, he thinks of me as a director. Like, I'm gonna step up and be that. Right. And so I just think, you know, that kind of graciousness um, it's even what directors of note can give to their, their crew members and their department heads. You know, sometimes you get in these environments, I'm finding it a little bit now for me that people might be, I don't, it's unfortunate, but people might be hesitant to tell me what they really think, uh, and, or to correct me or to give me an idea. And so, you know, or to ask a question. And I think that graciousness to open up a space to say, this is my expectation is that we're, you're gonna be in collaboration here. You gotta ask me questions, you gotta tell me things. Like Ms. Tyson did and like uh, Oprah did very early on, you know, uh, is, is what we should be doing for each other. They did that for me and made it a lot, a lot more comfortable. Not all the way comfortable, because it's Oprah. I mean, to say, cut, so could you? <laughs> <laughs> and she says, yeah. I can. You're like, okay, thanks. Okay, rolling. Let's try again. Um, it's very. It's a, it could be intimidating early on, but we've done it a couple times now, so it's easier. <laughs> yeah, but I've always been interested in like comparing what you how you guys interacted on uh, or what the process was like on on Selma versus Wrinkle in Time, and also in Wrinkle in Time, it's like she's in this with the three misses. Yeah. And they had such Mindy, Reese, Oprah, like they played off of each other yeah. so well. Like, was that, was that all, like, how did that decision to, 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 to cast the three of them come about? Did, were there, did they, the two of them agree to, I mean, how did that all work out? Well, Mindy was the first one that I wanted because I wanted a missus who wasn't black or white. And she was, she was in my early, early, before Aisha Coley, the casting director, was even on the project. Um, I said, you know, we got to get Mindy Kaling. And because I needed a comedian, I felt for this one particular missus who didn't talk much. She only spoke, she only speaks in quotes. So, I mean, if the script is the actor can only speak in quotes, you need someone who's going to put some zhuzh on that and make it funny and, you know, kind of. So I knew I needed a comedian for it and I didn't want anyone who was black or white. I wanted another 
uh, another culture, another another kind of person. And Mindy was my first choice, and uh, and she was a first yes. And then from there, you know, I remember someone saying in the pre-production or in early casting, this person's this character sounds like Oprah. I was like, yeah, it does kind of sound like her. You know, and I was like, maybe, yeah, ask her. And I, I just asked her one day. She said she loved the book, and okay, I was like, wow. And then Reese, such a big, massive star. Uh, and, you know, that ask was a big, I did not know her at all. I know her well now, and she's just lovely, all of them. Um, but I don't even think Reese was as, stratospheric then as she is now when we were I mean Reese is like talk to Reese I'm like lady you run Hollywood what how many shows do you have you're producing them and acting in them and have the book club and have those perfect looking kids like what <laughs> what are you doing and you're cooking on IG and like what is happening you're perfectly dressed everything's ironed what how does this work um yeah, she does TikToks yeah, and they're funny, and she, like, what are you doing? Yeah, she's incredible, and she's, uh, yeah, so they were a great threesome, and y them working together, they kind of lightened, uh, you know, I think they lightened, I think they had a lighter weight on their shoulders, because it wasn't all on one person, like, they all have been leads, but this one was an ensemble, and they were able to play off each other and they had a really good time. It was super fun work making that film. And how was that? Because, you know, you, you write so, like, basically everything that you make, just about, right? A wrinkle. So what was that process like? How did you, how did you incorporate Jennifer, you know, Lee into the process? Or, you know, how did you guys um, work? And what was that process like adapting, like, one of the most, you know, uh, cherished books around there. Yeah. World. Well, Jennifer Lee's a genius. Um, you know, yes, she's a, she wrote Frozen. Wrote Frozen. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> then, and wrote Winkle, but also runs Disney Animation. I think it's Disney Animation. Yeah. She's a president of the, she was a writer and producer, and now she runs the company. She's like, you know, the Jay-Z of screenwriting, like started just as an MC and now <laughs> she runs the thing. That's Jennifer Lee, great lady. But ultimately going into Wrinkle, you know, it, I knew it wasn't mine. No, 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 nothing in it was, the book wasn't mine, the script wasn't mine. Um, you know, this was me trying to serve Disney as best I could within the way that I knew to do things. And so it was a very different way of making films for me, something that I'm so happy I experienced. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think I was particularly healthy within the, the, the time, wasn't, wasn't particularly good at it. Um, you know, there's, there's some folks, great friends of mine who are really good at it, really good at taking things that are within that studio environment and making it their own and being able to hang on to, uh, their voice through the process and I, I i definitely struggled with that there i look at that film and i'm proud of it and i think fondly on the time making it and when i see the film i was like you got some good stuff in there yeah that was never meant to be there 
right? Like I'm, 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 uh, uh, infiltrated, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And got some things in that, you know, um, I think wouldn't have been there if I wasn't there and are, are, and I'm happy that they're on screen and that they exist. Um, but ultimately, you know, uh, that, that, that process is a much different process than the, when they see us or 13th or sugar or anything where the buck stops with me and I can control it all. So if I see something wrong or something not fitting or something not working, I can just go fix it. I right. can write myself out of it. I can edit my way out of it. I can direct my way into it. And, you know, it's a different animal. So, um, but beautiful experience. I wouldn't change it. And how would you, when you look back at like even your first, the, the first season that you put together for Queen Sugar. Mm. Um, now the show is, I mean, it's like, it's just, uh, uh, just gone on and on and on. And my mom actually sent me a list of questions to ask you about Queen Sugar. <laughs> I was like, no, mom, it's not appropriate to ask anybody questions. Queen Sugar her. is the show that is a secret cult following. Yes. People who watch Queen Sugar love Queen Sugar. And, you know, I, majority black women audience, um, but I'm always surprised. I have this thing where when people, um, and I'm fortunate in my life, and this makes me emotional when I think of it, but I'm fortunate in my life to be able to walk out of the door as a, a black woman director. I mean, come on, what are the odds? And for people to look at me, come up to me, and want to talk to me. And they, they smile at me. Every day I get smiles. I think of so many people ugh, get emotional in this world who are never smiled upon. And every day my work has brought smiles into my life and people walk up to me and they smile at me. And in that moment, right before they're going to speak, I used to think they're going to ask, they're going to say something about this person looks like they'll say something about wrinkle. This person looks like a 13er. <laughs> it's going to be about 13. This person and the, one of the joys of my life is I've stopped doing that. And I've just taken the smile and I, am, I marvel at the kinds of people who talk to me about different projects that you would never expect. You know, the Filipino custodian who came up to me in Washington, D.C. as I got off an elevator and I was walking away, he, ma'am, tapped me on the back. Did you, are you the lady who made Wrinkle in Time? Yes. Can I tell you how much I, that book saved my life and will tell me this story and I would never imagine him. Or the, 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 I was uh, uh, shooting uh, When They See Us. It was a woman, blonde, MAGA, okay? Like full on prison staff in New York City, who was assigned to me to take me where I needed to go. Whenever I walked off the set, it was a working prison, so she had to be with me. And we had a nice rapport, and had a nice rapport. And at the end of it, she, I said to her, so you, you know, you you, you believe in the Make America Great thing? And she's like, yeah, you know, I, I do. And we had a conversation, and she, then start talking about Ralph Angel on Queen Sugar. Ralph Angel is a fine young black man. Yes. Queen Sugar, who does not have anything to do with this lady. There's nothing 
There's nothing connecting this lady and that. And she broke down. I don't think he should be with Darla because she she has her own issues. She needs to be in rehab. And no, 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 I'm mind blown. Like just, huh? This is the, these are the gifts. These are the joys uh, that I get to experience with folks walking up to me and talking to me about what, I don't know what your question was. No, I, 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 but this is again, like where we started at the beginning of this conversation, it's why your work is radical. It's why, you know, the, the power of what you're doing and, and, you know, Queen Sugar, which by the way, my mother flew from Houston, Texas to LA to come see you in the cast two, two years ago, uh, <laughs> like flew. From wow. I wish I would have known. Just to come see you. Uh, you know, I, 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 I see the power that, that, that Queen Sugar has in that audience. And when I look at even my own mom, I'm like, when she watches, you no, know, I mean, my mom is a black Southern woman who's a lesbian who grew up, you know, with me, a kid in the 80s. Like, I mean, you know, the most, we talk about living in silos. Yeah. That, my mom lived in the silo. Yeah. And what you do with a show like Queen Sugar is you give people these access points. You create a, a character like Nova that gives like my mom, like, oh, I, you know, like I'm vibing, she loves Nova. And <laughs> she's never, you know, been able to enjoy like kind of the, the, the family drama, you know, kind mm -hmm. of show. She always has to separate herself out of yeah. it. And yeah. you put everybody in, even mm -hmm. within our own culture. Mm -hmm. And, that is like, that is sheer magic. It, it's just, it's magical. Um, it's, uh, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's activism. It's, it's, uh, it's leader. I mean, it's all of the things that changes, like how we, how we, how we deal with each other, you know, in this crazy country. Um, <laughs> uh, just sorry, DGA, but yeah, like it's, it's. They'll be okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, and I also feel like with Queen Sugar, um, you, you have the, the icing, but you also kind of, that's a, it's a really powerful show. You're dealing with like systemic racism, uh, life after incarceration, um, sexuality within the book. I mean, so much stuff is packed into that show. How do you know, like, oh, okay, I think we've got, we, we're a little bit on the soapbox right now, or like, we, how do you measure the, that dance? I think Queen Sugar is a combination of soap opera and soap box. <laughs> We're just looking for the soft space in the middle. You're gonna walk away from a season of Queen Sugar with a character who has, you know, uh, had a, 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 a very scary encounter with a racist cop. You're gonna be dealing with black farmer land issues. You're gonna be dealing with, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, fear around the trans community within the black community. You're gonna be dealing with issues of faith challenged, all wrapped in, you know, six packs, not of beer, of apps, okay? Great clothes, <laughs> um, you know, some laughs, you know, romance. And the idea is, I just want you to watch, you know? I want you to get the protein bar but I'm gonna put it in a Snickers wrapper. Mm -hmm. And you'll be eating a protein bar and thought you were eating Snickers. So, you know, our audience, you know, come, come for Ralph Angel, you know, stay for Nova's politics. <laughs> and, and, you know, and he has a lot, he has a lot going on too. That character, all of them are built 
um, in, in, in adapting the book, taking those characters and putting them in this world was built just for this. You know, they look one way, but they're functioning within the story in a different way that hopefully can, can, can take us to different places as we think about issues within the black community. But I love, um, you know, I love hearing about it from sisters, from black women. Uh, and I also am just shocked that this very small numbers of people who aren't black who watch it. And, and I love mostly Southern white women. Mm -hmm. and, and I was on a, on a, on a, on a, a native people's reservation and um, working on a project and uh, not working on a project. I was just there with a friend and I couldn't believe how many native women were telling me that their favorite show was Queen Sugar. And it was so, for uh, the reason made me so sad. What else will we watch? We, we don't have anything to watch with us. So it felt close. The family yeah. structure felt yeah. close. I understood the auntie and the, you know what I mean? And everyone who's in it, I understood the angst. I understood that rural feel. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment that I decided to uh, start developing a, a show, similar show uh, all, with an all native cast. Wow. And um, which is so good. I just got the script. So great. Oh my God. And, um, but, you know, just the idea that, uh, that the work and the intention that we have with work, you never know as an artist where that intention is going to ricochet and yeah. who it's going to touch and how. You know, when I'm making Nova, you know, I may not have specifically thought about your mother, but there's nothing better than hearing that there's someone out there who sees or connects with that character. There's just nothing better. I mean, that. that She's that, almost that, 70. She's almost 70. Tell her I said hello. I will. Yeah, um, but she's got to come to the set and visit. <laughs> well, we have we have about ten more minutes, so I, I feel like we 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 should um, go back to Selma. Um, it would feel uh, I, I would not feel right ending this conversation, um, not talking about John Lewis and Reverend C. T. Vivian, um, who both passed away uh, on the same day. Mm -hmm. um, what was your, how, how much interaction did you have with them when you were creating yeah. Selma? Well, I'll talk about Reverend C.T. Vivian first. As I was making Selma, it's similar to like I'm working on some DC comic stuff right now. You got to get to know all the superheroes to be able to create the world. And you have to know their powers so that you can create the story and show how their powers work. And so that's how I approached Selma. They were all superheroes to me. And the story wasn't just about King. It was about, it was about all of them. And so I, I studied them all, watched tape on them all, read all their books uh, so that I could really understand them. And I have to say, out of all of them, C.T. Vivian was my, my favorite one. So when we, were, we invited him to the set, um, and I, I interviewed him a little bit on the phone. I remember the day that he walked on the set. I, I, I just, I could I couldn't even get myself together, Alex. I was so, it was like Superman walked on the set. I was so sweaty palms and so, and he was just, oh, he was so great to me. And so himself as I'd studied him. Um, and I had the occasion to, to, you know, be around him a bit in the premiere activities and just was uh, everything you would want your hero to be. Uh, John Lewis, the congressman, I've never called him John Lewis, called him the congressman. I was around much more and got to know much more. 
he was really, he and Ambassador Young were the two that I depended on most for the script. And he, this is a lovely, lovely woman being. Um, and spent so much time with me and answered every stupid question that he probably answered 10,000 times. My favorite thing is when he would say, no one's ever asked me that question. No one, what, how could this be? It happened maybe four times, um, but so gracious, so lovely, so call and check on me, just checking in, came to the set a few times, um, always gave the best hugs um, and, uh, and great advice that, that went beyond the film. The last time I saw them both was this year, earlier this year, I saw them together. Wow. At Tyler's opening of his studio. Wow. I'll tell the story as we, as we get towards the end. So it's Tyler Perry's opening of his studio, which, you know, I don't feel like folks in Hollywood pay enough attention to or give enough of a hat tip to. What he's done there is extraordinary. You have to walk it to, be, to believe it. It is every studio in Hollywood. So imagine the Universal lot, the Warner lot, the Disney lot, the Paramount lot, the Sony lot, all the lots. All of them put together times three. That's how big the land is that he has, a former army barracks, right? He's taken that over with sound stages, state of the art that he's built from scratch and like full towns that you can, it's like, oh, this is a full town. This is a small, is this a neighborhood? No, this is not a neighborhood. Are these sets? Yeah, these are facades. But it can't be. It's as far as I, the eye can see. Like what you would usually do with visual effects, it's real and there. <laughs> uh, usually you just have the house and then v, VFX takes over the street. No, no, you could just, it's just a <laughs> So we're at the opening of this and it's a hot ticket. And the invitation had come the summer before, the, summer before, the, the save the date, and it like, opened up automatically and confetti came. It was like, oh my gosh, this is the invite? Oh, yes, this is gonna be fantastic. And everyone's gonna be there. Get there, we're in Atlanta, black tie dress. Everyone, it's Beyonce, it's Kaepernick. It's, it, if they were black and have done anything of note in the culture in the last, and are living, they're there. I'm not playing with you. So every, Mary J, Black, I mean, every, everyone you can think of, every Grammys you've been to or watched, every black person known to man is there. It's a big room. People are, are just mesmerized by the, even, even stars are mesmerized by the stars, right? Um, Oprah, everybody's there. And off in the corner, in a, in a place of prominence, but still, like, not in the hullabaloo, because why would they want to be, is Congressman John Lewis, Reverend C.T. Vivian, and Ambassador Andrew Young, and their companions. I see them. I cross the room to them. I say, gentlemen, hi, do you remember me? Girl, sit down. <laughs> we remember you. you. You talked our ear off for two years. Yes, we remember you. Sit down. Hugs. I haven't told the story, I thought about it. hugs all around. And I sat down next to uh, the congressman and I said, Congressman, what's gonna happen to this country? What, what's going on? This is in February, I think, January, February. What's gonna happen to us? And he said, 
we'll be fine. We always are. We survive. This is going to be just fine. I said, what do I do? What do I do? He said, do everything. Do everything. And so I hope we do. I hope we do everything. I try to do everything and take that in the way that it resonates with you. Whatever everything is to you. It doesn't mean quantity. It means, for me, quality. Uh, the quality in which we're telling our stories, the quality with which we're building our crews, quality with, in, you know, in, with which we're engaging with each other and listening to each other. You know, it all matters is basically what he was saying. It all matters. Mm -hmm. Every little thing matters. So this matters and you matter, Alex Stapleton. <laughs> and thank you so much for, for doing this with me. I'm really glad you agreed. Oh, I, I, it, I'm just honored uh, to, to, you know, because this is what we do. This is a part of our culture is for the first time we get to share the oral tradition and we get to make movies and we get to make content. Yeah. And you, um, you are, 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 you're, you're shining that, that, that bright light, you know, that we can all flock to. So I, um, I'm just so happy to be here with you as well. Wish it was in person, but next time well we shine it on each other and i i just want to thank the dga um for uh allowing me to do this uh you know i don't know if i'm a likely pick i don't know what what instigated this invitation but i accept it i receive it i want to thank the whole dga staff and the board and uh and, and everyone special projects jeremy special, special projects special projects committee thank you, jeremy we got to do more of these. Uh, we only we only scratched the surface with your work, Ava. So thank you. Get to do thanks. thanks, Alex. Thanks everyone watching. Appreciate you. Bye, everybody. Bye. That wraps up this exclusive discussion with Ava DuVernay. If you'd like to hear more from the Craft of the Director series, check out episode 263, which features director Mimi Leader discussing her extensive filmography. Or visit our YouTube page to find discussions with David O. Russell, Leslie Linka Glatter, and Guillermo del Toro. The Director's Cut is available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.